Welcome to the I Dry Needle to the Point podcast. I'm your host, Paul Kaloran, and today we invite pain science educator and researcher, Dr. Adrian Lowe. We're live. Uh, so welcome back, folks. Um, this is I Dry Needle to the Point podcast. If you've never tuned in before, I'm your host, Paul Kaloran. Um, and we're actually on our 14th episode, which is wild. So thanks for joining. Again, if you haven't joined us before, once I kind of introduce myself, introduce our new guest, and I'll introduce the topic. To the point means we're going to try and keep this real short. Uh, most of you are probably tuning in in between notes, in between patients, or on your lunch hour. So we'll keep it as brief as possible. Um, and yeah, if we're live on Facebook, uh, that's great. You can drop in some comments, uh, and we can answer those at the end. Otherwise, if you're catching us afterwards, which is the majority of our listeners, you can find us uh, on our YouTube channel, I Dry Needle. Otherwise, all of the big um, podcast platforms, we're on iTunes, we're on Spotify, we're on Google Podcasts. So thanks for listening, I Dry Needle to the point. Um, if you saw the title of this episode, uh, we have another clinician that doesn't necessarily use dry needling every day or even heavily in practice but he is certainly uh, a pioneer. He's a lead researcher, lead educator, and really pioneering um, the education front of pain science or therapeutic neuroscience education. So today, uh, when we have this time with that type of expert, uh, we wanna hear what he has to say, but I'll kind of give the infusion. I'll ask the dry needling type questions that'll, that'll kind of connect the dots of Honestly, what seems to be almost polarizing or on different ends of the spectrum, you have this pain science realm and this very extreme end of that spectrum, and you have this interventionalist realm, and you're kind of on that end of the spectrum, relying heavily on passive modalities. So hopefully we all know that uh, clinical practice should be somewhere in the middle, but um, without much further ado, I will introduce our guest. So today, very happy to have Dr. Adrian Lowe. Um, he's a PT, PhD. If you haven't heard the name before, uh, he's written books. He lectures internationally, not just throughout the US. Uh, like I said, he's pioneering education. He founded, created, um, and was the owner of previously ISPI, International Spine and Pain Institute, which is now a part of EIM. So if you've taken any of the TNE or even the TPS, the Therapeutic Pain Specialist Certification with EIM, then you'll know his voice and know his face. And we'll touch on some of those offerings that are available on EIM uh, at the end, because really there's everything from little uh, teaser online um, TNE content to, like I mentioned, a full-blown certification. So Adrian, uh, is there anything I missed? How would you like to introduce yourself to our audience? <laughs> um, well, first of all, I like to be called Adrian, not Dr. Lowe. I'm a very, I'm pretty humble, I think, in many ways. Um, I'm just a therapist, clinician, love what I do, and love talking to people like you and clinicians. And um, uh, yeah, it's just pretty simple, basic, and um, living the dream. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's introduce, I guess, kind of your background to the audience. So first of all, where are you from? And second of all, kind of what's your, how did you get into PT story? <laughs> well, yeah, I got the funny accent, right? And it's not, not Southern Iowa. Um, I was born and raised in South Africa um, in Cape Town, just outside of Cape Town and uh, lived there. Uh, my family is still there. A lot of my family is there. I, uh, 
Yeah, and how did I get to PT school is pretty simple. I um, it was kind of a I wanted to do medicine, wasn't smart enough, not even close. Um, love sports, and you know it's a classic story. Sports, medicine, meet each other, recorded physical therapy. Didn't get into PT school. Yeah, uh, the grades had to be really high, and I got lucky because a student dropped out a week before class, and they're like, "Hey, you, are you interested?" I was on the list. I was probably number nine hundred and ninety nine on the list of forty students, and um, hopped in, and um, yeah, yeah, became a PT student. And um, I'll be honest, it was completely different than what I envisioned. You know, I expected sports and athletes, and then I started seeing, you know, COPD and chronic fatigue syndrome and femur fractures and stuff that was a little bit weird. But um, uh, yeah, and it's been an amazing journey. I've never heard that that part of the story before. I don't think anyone would have guessed you're number nine hundred ninety nine. I was. <laughs> so to give our little dry needling infusion, we ask this with every guest, and honestly, uh, the answer can be no. Uh, but what is your experience with dry needling as far as your personal training? Do you use it in practice? Otherwise, what's just your exposure in general? Yeah, it's interesting, though. Um, in, so in South Africa, our, our physical therapists or physiotherapists are, have unrestricted direct access. Our system is very different. And so we were trained, you know, by Jeff Maitland, who came to our school and all those things. But in our final year, um, we get exposed to advanced concepts. So we actually did dry needling in PT school in the final quarter of our training of, of our year. So we did dry needling. I mean, but it was very mechanical. It was, you know, Travel Simon's trigger points, referral patterns, spray and stretch, uh, soft tissue work, those kind of things, and then needling as well, very mechanical. And then when I came to the United States, I practiced in Missouri, which if you know the slogan of Missouri, show me state. So you're not allowed to do stuff until somebody shows you. So I couldn't do all this advanced stuff I was trained. So, so it kind of went away. And then there was an orthopedic surgeon in Missouri. I worked a lot, but he loved me and we worked really great together. And one day I had a patient I wanted to treat. And I said, you know, this is dry needling. Well, what is it? I explained to him and, and he allowed me to write a script, which was really weird. And um, I did things nobody had seen. And then, um, you know, uh, yeah. I, and then I probably fell out of favor because I moved to the pain world. And now I find myself in the dry needling. I work with you. I work with Ado. I work with the, the dry needling people. My wife is FDN, you know, level one, level two. She's gone through this. So I see it every day now in practice. I don't see patients right now. And then the interesting thing, just to finish up, is we're also doing dry needling research as an extension of some of the work we're doing. So I've kind of circled back towards the dry needling side. But, um, yeah, it's, it's intriguing. I, I have very strong... Um, liking in dry needling, strong thoughts about it, um, just like most other treatments. So anyway, yeah, that, that's a background, neither you know there, but yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. You've already touched on a few things. First of all, if you didn't uh, tune into our episode last week, we had another pain science mind who stated he previously heavily used dry needling in his practice, but now he is on the end of the spectrum where he sees it um, mainly as this highly placebo uh, passive intervention. So if you, uh, I'll probably throw a link up there if you want to listen to that, but uh, Jared Hall has a very different stance. He lives in the pain science realm now. Um, I only bring that up because he, a lot of his critiques come from what Adrian mentioned is the, the kind of the initial foundational theory, Janet Travell, everything being this a uh, very biochemical, histological, myofascial phenomenon, which kind of denies the nervous system impact. Um, so I like that you brought that up already. And you all, almost also answered my next question was, uh, what led you into this pain science, therapeutic neuroscience education realm? Yeah, Paul, it's easy. I, I was recently in another podcast. I failed. I, I just failed. 
I was trained in orthopedic manual therapy, came to the United States. I was doing high velocity thrust. I was doing manual therapy, which is unheard of. Nobody was doing it in the mid 1990s, especially in Missouri for that matter. And I'm not throwing anybody on the bus. And um, I started seeing more complex patients and I had no idea what to do with them. I mean, you can only mobile joint that much. You can manipulate them that many times. You can stretch them that many times and they wouldn't get any better. And I was really close to being burned out and done with the profession. And then I heard about David Butler um, via my instructors. I went to a course and day one of a course in Dallas, Texas, he threw up the Louis Gifford uh, mature organism model, which blew my mind. It And this was in 96, by the way, two years before they published it. Um, just the idea that a facet joint has a brain, a facet joint has a football team. And if that football team wins, the facet joint's happier and the football team loses. I mean, it just absolutely foundationally shifted me. And then the good news is, I mean, David and I became good friends. He became my mentor. And then just, you know, then he started going to research and he started going that path. But it was 100% I failed. I, I could not help people anymore. And um, if you told me day one PT school, I was going to one day work in chronic pain. I said, you're out of your freaking mind. There's no way. And here I'm sitting talking to you about chronic pain. <laughs> <That's> silly. <laughs> I love that. And you're even throwing in some of the analogies. I mean, again, if you have not taken uh, any type of pain science, therapeutic neuroscience education, I mean, when Adrian starts talking about a football team in your facet joint, that's the kind of stuff that not just as a clinician will impact anything you do, even if you're a manual therapist, dry needler, uh, or even more exercise based, like that type of context you can use with any clinical scenario. Um, and that's where I want to go next. Like I said, last week's episode was very different. I mean, I, I invite challenge. I'm not saying every PT needs to love needling. Um, but I will, uh, I guess, debate the thought that it's completely, uh, placebo and that just any type of mechanical intervention is useless. Um, and even to, to take a step further, uh, with the dry needling certification through evidence in motion right now, um, pain science, the therapeutic neuroscience education course is a part of that. And I would say when I went through it, it was highly valuable. It changed how I explained needling and how, how, explained how I communicated with my patients. Yeah. So I have my answer as a dry needling educator, but I want to ask you, Adrian, like appreciating that even people in your pain science arena are poo-pooing needling and manual therapy and almost any type of physical mechanical intervention. Uh, what is your stance or how do you see those two sides of our profession um, being used clinically or just coming together in research and in use? Yeah, isn't it interesting? Our profession has such a history of going, it's so polarized, right? then it's everything is dynamic stretching, then it's static stretching, then it's dynamic again. And we do this stupid stuff all the time. And so we tend to circulate. Um, you know, it's interesting. I know where people are coming from that says, you know, pain science, it's hands off, it is all that. I know where they're coming from and it's very unfortunate where they're coming from. Um, many of them I'm aware of and I know, and that's fine. And I'm not having to go in anybody. Um, our research is pointing very powerfully that interventions like manual therapy, dry needling, have, has a significant other role to play. If you're looking at it as a purely mechanical stimulus, you're, you're already 18 steps behind where we are today. Um, we now know that a body, a, a person's body is represented in their brain in the primary somatosensory cortex and other areas. And that map that we have can powerfully initiate or maintain chronic pain, pain for that matter. 
And how that MAP reacts to hands-on treatment is intriguing. We have now done studies to show that manual therapy is, an, is a way, a potential way to remap the brain. We just literally on my desk, not lying because I'm on your, your, your um, uh, podcast today, but on my desk is a paper we just got done where we had people coming with chronic pain. We had them color where they hurt on a body chart. We measured some specific measures. We needled them before and after the body map. When they shrink the body map with a color, the pain significantly shifts. And so this connection between brain, plasticity, body, touch, needling, I, I find incredibly intriguing. And, and I know some people would say, well, you're trying to put a square peg round the hole and you're making it fit because um, I just think one of the biggest controversies, one of the biggest travesties is we, we have a biopsychosocial model that's forgot, forgot the bio. Um, you know, recently I asked Michael Shacklock, who's a very big pain guy and, and a very cool guy, you know, what's the future of pain management for rehab? And he said, um, we must re-engage the physicality. We can we tended to move to the psychosocial, fear avoidance, catastrophization, all those cool cognitive stuff. But we as therapists have an in to the brain via the tissues. And I would argue this, and sorry, I, sorry, Paul, I'll stop, but it, the, the, one of my favorite quotes is by Louis Gifford, the late Louis Gifford. The more powerful the technique, the more powerful the placebo. And dry needling carries enormous placebo, but I would argue that what, what, what if people say it's just placebo, they just gave you the biggest compliment you can get because the most powerful treatment on planet Earth right now for pain is to enhance placebo. How you do it, that's a skill. And needling does it really well. Manipulation does it better than modes. I mean, it's, it's intriguing. And I, I think there's going to be a, a, a series of studies coming out soon that's going to connect dry needling further away from just being a mechanical nociceptive thing. It enhances endogenous analgesia, patient expectations. I mean, nowadays people walk in your clinic and you know, like, do you guys are needling here? That's placebo. They just walk in asking for intervention. And if you provide that, you're already there. I mean, it's, it's those, I think we need to be careful um, often throwing things out. I know where they're coming from, um, but in people, that, that do not have high levels of fear and catastrophization, locus of control is still strong with them. Techniques like manual therapy, dry needling are very powerful interventions that uh, we should truly use. The, the, yeah, anyway, I'll stop there. I can go all day. <laughs> you should go all day. Uh, uh, if we go past 15 minutes, I think the audience would love that. Uh, but thank you, because that went straight into my next question. Uh, and I even admitted last week, uh, my first dreadling course, 2011, it was, it was based at least partially in the theoretical constructs of this little micro environment, these shortened sarcomeres of a trigger point and what happens when that twitch response is activated. Um, I say this almost every course I teach, I'm prepared in five years, 10 years from now to, if I'm still teaching dreadling courses to explain it entirely differently. Um, and I think that's how it should be. It's already occurred, like from 2010 to 2021. Um, and you already touched on some of the most intriguing drindling research I'm reading right now uh, isn't looking at the microenvironment of tissue. And honestly, it's not even just looking at segmental lower motor neuron neuromuscular function and recruitment. It's everything uphill from that. What happens in the brain? What happens cortically? What does it look like on a functional MRI, that primary uh, secondary somatosensory cortex, the thalamus and hypothalamus, when we put a needle in the body uh, and what we see is it lights up. And in the context of everything we know about uh, 
maladaptive reorganization with pain, not chronic pain, just pain changes that happen very quickly with our patients. Mm -hmm. uh, I see that as how we're going to be teaching needling in five years, 10 years, when we have even more research like this, which honestly you might, you're probably going to be a part of, I would assume. <laughs> <laughs> so if we appreciate that we can, we can light up, we can remap, we can stimulate and even um, improve like positive yeah. organize the cortex. How would, how do you explain that type of cortical change to a patient? Because yeah. honestly, there are patients that buy, uh, uh, clinicians that buy into it, but their immediate question is, how do I communicate this to a patient? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to do it, right? So, so let me let me get back off for one second. You know, I, I know we keep talking about the old models of sarcomeres and trigger points, whatever, very biologically local. There's nothing wrong with that either. Why is it such a sin suddenly that we affect sarcomeres or trigger pointed twitch responses? Who gives a crap? I mean, I, I need, this is the part we do, Paul. We shift from the trigger point sarcomere to the thalamus. There's a hell of a lot of real estate between the sarcomere and, and the thalamus, right? And so what if I did do something on a sarcomere level? Awesome. Wait, what a great day in the clinic. So, so I just want to put that little nugget. I, I think we forget that. What if I did something local? Okay. Um, as far as explanation, that's cool. You know, I would say on the advanced level, it's what does a patient bring to you? What do they believe, right? Um, and, and so I, I want to be careful because I think the explanation for dry needling for an acute nociceptive-based pain state would be different than chronic pain. So for your audience today, I mean, I'm, my team specializes in chronic pain. So I'm going to, if you don't mind, I'm going to veer in that direction, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we did a study on manual therapy, and it'll be the same thing I do for dry needling. Um, we had patients come in, we showed them a picture of the homunculus and we showed them a body map and I will tell the patients, okay, close your eyes and they close their eyes. I say, take your right index finger, touch your nose and they all do this, right? They touch the nose and then when they touch the nose, they open your eyes, they go there and I say, okay, why didn't you take your left thumb and stick it in your, in your ear? And they, they kind of, whoa, I said, because you have a map in your brain, mini me. And all you need to know today is when life is good, meaning you do a lot of cool things, you work with your hands, the map is sharp. So this is a hand, this is the index finger, this is my nose, you know it with your eyes closed. When we develop pain and we move different and we get pain and we're afraid of pain and spasm and all those things, the maps get a little bit blurry. And all I need you to know is some very smart people with funny accents tell us when, when the maps get blurry, it drives pain because the brain freaks out. And we have now figured out if we can make that map a little sharper, a little better for the brain to see, oh, there's my back, there's my hand, there's my foot, the pain eases. And one of the ways we do it in our clinic is we use a needle. And so we talk about dry needling. So I'm going to take this area you're hurting, we do this needling, it's going to affect the tissues, it's going to make the tissues relax a little bit, those things. But what it also does, it sharpens some of that mapping. Get permission, is that okay? We do these and we have shown patients, A, can understand it. They can go, I get it. This explanation isn't above their head. Uh, we tested it, we published this in JMMT a couple of years ago in manual therapy. And um, we, lo and behold, when they do it this way, their pain eases. Now, there's a lot of reasons why it would be better, but it's intriguing. Patients can take it on. You can give them a neuroscience explanation, but I would have no problem telling them, listen, the muscles are tight. There's, there's trigger points, there's some spasm, and this will release some of that because it's their language, it's their belief. So I'd want to find out what do they believe, and then how can I take my needling story and adapt it to meet their expectations, I think is a critical part. And you know what's impressive, the audience might not know, is he just condensed about 20 hours of, of lecture into two minutes and 20 sentences. So again, if, if this is even just piquing your interest, 
Uh, and I guess I gave my endorsement of even a dry needling clinician, manual therapist, uh, of why there's such value in this type of education, this type of content. So I'm gonna ask you to condense even further because this is to the point. <laughs> but let's say our audience out there is dry needling clinicians. Some of what you said is just very intriguing. They've never communicated with patients. They've never considered some of those external variables. Um, and I'll give my reinforcement of, and all of the, honestly, all the resources out there if you are interested in going down this route. But if you had to give like one or two pieces of advice to this dry needling audience out here, uh, in terms of what you just mentioned, reframing the narrative of pain, patient communication, even communication uh, prior to or following dry needling, what are just the, those one or two like sound bites you'd give to a dry needling audience? Yeah, you know, what are the sound bites? I think um, we need to decatastrophize our language, giving people language that they understand, um, not using things that will, you know, words that harm, words that heal. But I, I think the idea is taking an experience that we're going to go through and normalizing it, putting some science behind it, but also the compassion and empathy. Pain neuroscience education, people often think about it as a technique. You know, patient X walk in when they meet certain criteria, we pull this tool out. But it's the way we talk to people. It's, 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 it's giving information. It's talking them off the ledge. It's reducing fear, reducing catastrophization. I mean, Paul, what a great thing is somebody walks into the clinic going, that was a great session. Wow, I, I get hope. The most powerful thing you can give somebody in chronic pain or in pain period is hope. And, and in our language, it's called pain catastrophization. When they walk in, woe is me, life is over, bury me now. And then we intervene where they walk out and they see the outlook is not as bleak. They go, I can get better. You know, Paul explained stuff to me and he worked a little bit on my back. And that's what I think is as an important part. It's not a technique. It's 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 an approach to a patient. That's why PE can blend with manual therapy, with exercise, with dry needling. It's not a technique. Um, yes, there are specific things you can pull out specifically for chronic pain. But um, I, you know, I've watched my own language shift so much from mechanical orthopedic manual therapist to softer spoken, more generalized, more calming, more relaxing, more encouraging, um, which is part of what this model is. But with sound research behind it. It's not just being compassionate and empathetic. It's it's the biology behind it, the science that people are like, whoa, this really works. So that's probably not a science sound bite. It's probably not something you want to put out, but it's 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 that's the essence, I think. Um, yeah, you cannot talk pain out of people. I mean, that's a fallacy. I mean, look at our viewpoint in JOSPT recently. Pain neuroscience education by itself is useless. Um, it has to be attached to something physical. And what's more physical than dry needling, manual therapy, exercise, all these cool things. And that's why I get frustrated when we often throw the baby out of the bathwater, say it's only this or only that. I, I find it's very short-sighted in many ways. I agree. And you gave, I think there's plenty of sound bites in there. I'll chop it up, don't worry. <laughs> but no, even in, um, to give some very specific examples, like we teach this on the level one. Uh, if you wanna start talking about how powerful words are, Think about uh, that patient that's never felt a needle. If you say, all right, here comes a poke, they're gonna feel a sharp experience. If you just say, uh, here we go, or a tap. I mean, you can talk them into good or bad. We paint very specific examples on our, even our level one course. Like we talk about all of the neurovascular anatomy, what we're intending to treat, what we're not intending to treat. And I guarantee if you say to a patient like, oh man, there's a, there's a big nerve here that I'm trying to avoid. Let me know if it sparkles out your foot. The chances that they experience that just increased yeah. versus if you give them the spiel of achy, crampy, sore is normal, a twitch happens and that's a good thing. Let me know if you feel anything different. 
you just statistically decrease the chance that they're going to experience uh, all of the nerve words that we use, spicy, sparkly, electric. So um, what Adrian is saying, big picture is important. Like even when we introduced uh, in context of a treatment plan, the modality of dry needling, uh, setting up patient expectations, that's so important, but it can get as tactical as the words, the demeanor, uh, the tenor of how you use it during a treatment. Because honestly, I've come to realize the, the, the separation between a novice needler and an experienced needler is not just the, uh, the fine motor skills of manipulating a needle necessarily, it's the confidence, it's the communication, and, and that will directly translate into your outcomes from dry needling, like literally how sore they are, how they interpreted it, how they see it as valuable. Uh, so again, that's, that's my personal infusion of you take this type of training, this type of education, it will enhance your outcomes clinically with patients, but honestly, it will enhance your dry needling outcomes, like physically on and off the table. It will, you'll see a difference in the response from your dry needling treatment. Um, and that is all the time we have. It always goes faster. We went over 15 minutes by far. Um, but again, um, there is a lot of content. There are many resources out there for you. So first of all, if you're on the socials at EIM team is where you can see Adrian's content. If you go to the Evidence in Motion website, again, you can find stuff, literally free content on the EIM access membership, all the way into like an online do it at your own pace at home course. Uh, I took the TNE, the Therapeutic Neuroscience Education course, which is kind of the, the more interactive faculty-led online portion. And you can go all the way through to the TPS CERT, the Therapeutic Pain Specialist CERT, which honestly some of our um, EIM dry needling faculty uh, have gone through the full TPS and to hear how they use it clinically and again, how it enhanced their practices. Um, it was, it's impressive, honestly. Like I, I wish I had that degree of confidence and, and knowledge with the clientele. And we're not just talking chronic pain, but I'd say if you use needling with a chronic pain population, uh, this is almost required content. It's essential. So Adrian, I want to thank you so much for your time. Um, no problem. I haven't seen you a lot lately. I mean, I know how busy you are. So even your 20 minutes of time as an EIM colleague, I know is is highly valuable, but I want to thank you. I know I'll see you soon. Um, any final words for the audience? No, just to stay, inqui just stay inquisitive, learn, and um, you know, enjoy the time with your patients and learn from them. And um, you know, again, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. So again, if you didn't catch this live, uh, it'll be on our YouTube channel if you actually want to see our faces. I don't know if you noticed, but I have a much more of a white polar glow uh, I am back home in my stomping grounds. We had a, uh, a dry needling intensive course last weekend, Wisconsin Chiropractic Association just approved needling. But I'm from Appleton. I'm right here, uh, five minutes from where I went to high school. So that glow you see is the layer of snow reflecting off through the window on my, my Seattle complexion of no, no sun. Um, so I will be back home next week. We have another episode next Wednesday. You can check us out on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Um, but that's it. This was I Dry Needle to the Point. Thanks for joining and have a great week.